Since relocating from Silicon Valley to Europe in 2012, Beth Suzanne has helped over 2,500 startups successfully communicate their idea and their vision to potential partners and investors. Her clients are on a mission to change the world through technology. From solving the world's water crisis to issues surrounding climate change and utilizing new technologies like the blockchain. After just eight years, her clients have a 78% success rate, go on to raise an average of 4 million euros in funding each, and she has raised a total of 10 billion euros. Everybody's put here on earth for a reason. Most people that I've met, if not everybody, is sort of looking to find out why am I here and what is the value that I bring to the world. All my life, my key goal was not only to have myself feel valued, but I was aware that I wanted to help other people to have their value recognized so that who they were, what they brought to the world was seen, heard, and acted on as quickly as possible. Change can happen very quickly. It's a matter of knowing what to do, how to do it, getting the practice to do it, getting the feedback, practicing it, and then you can change. And it doesn't have to take a long time. Beth, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. You've had a wildly successful career as a pitch coach in the eight years since relocating from Silicon Valley. 10 billion in total raised and over 70% of that for tech startups specifically. So I want to, of course, delve deep into that and figure out exactly how you do what you do and how you achieve the results you achieve. But first of all, I just want to take it back a bit to kind of figure out where it all began and where it all came from. Were you born with this natural gift for communicating and, and teaching? Um, I think I was born with a natural gift for being hypervigilant and noticing. So first you have to notice what's happening in your environment to be able to give someone uh, um, results and advice. You have to notice what they're saying, what they're not saying, how they're moving, how they're not moving. And I, as a child, I always was very, very um, observant and I noticed what was going on in the, in the environment around me with people, my family, friends, etc. I was really observant. <laughs> Where did that come from? Were you just born with it ever since you can remember? Or? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was just, I always had it. <laughs> and how did that ability serve you as you were growing up, as you were a young kid? Um, it served me to be able to navigate the unspoken and spoken currents mm -hmm. in interactions between people. So what that does in my pitch coaching now is that I'm able to see very quickly about the spoken and unspoken uh, communication mm -hmm. and um, messages that people are conveying that they're not aware of. So would you, would you class that as emotional intelligence and empathy? Yeah, yeah I, it's emotional intelligence. Later as an adult you learn that it's, it's, it's emotional intelligence and I think I had a highly developed <laughs> sense of emotional intelligence since I was a child. Were there any particular events that led to you really harnessing this ability and your emotional intelligence? I think uh, when I was 20, um, I went to um, university in Europe. So I left um, California where I'd been raised. I've been raised outside of New York and upstate New York. And then I, we moved to California when I was about nine. And um, when I was 20, I, I went to France for a year. And uh, noticing how 
people in France and across Europe from traveling around Europe, how there's differences in how people relate to each other and the sort of values and the spoken and unspoken messages mm -hmm. that different cultures convey. And I just had a, a year where I could really see what the difference were between the American values of, that I'd been exposed to and what was happening in Europe and how people related differently. What, what were the American values that were instilled in you and picked up naturally as you were growing up? Indecision is bad. Okay. Action, you know, even if you're not clear or sure about what you need to do, you need to take action. Mm -hmm. Action is extremely important. Also, um, it, the American values are that you're supposed to um, fill the space with sound and talk. You're not supposed to have silence. Mm -hmm. And in France, um, it's sort of the opposite. And then a, lot, a number of other countries in Europe also is that you should only talk when you have something interesting to say yeah. or you, you should not be overly personal with people either. You shouldn't ask personal questions. Would you say that those values and the boundaries in France and Europe was more natural to you? Yes, the French values were a lot more um, natural to me. I just sort of thrived there, whereas in the U.S. I had always... Um, there was a lot of stress associated being, with being raised in, the, in, the, in America. It's competitive, extremely competitive, that when you meet people, it's about what you do, how well you did in school, and I know that a lot of cultures now, that's living the same thing, but, but in, the, in the U.S. growing up, it was just about pushing all the time to make sure that you um, excelled as much as possible. And when I went to France, I got in with a group of friends that went to l'école polytechnique, which is one of the grand écoles they call them, one of the best schools. But so they were always pushing it academically. But their their um, leisure time, their downtime, was so different than than what I experienced in, in America. What way? Um, they were more sort of interactive in exploring ideas and experiences that were. Um, like going on picnics and going dancing and visiting um, interesting cultural sites. Whereas when I was in the U.S., it was um, more about um, <laughs> just sort of thumbing your nose at your parents. So, <laughs> so people were um, taking drugs and uh, just doing anything imaginable, beyond imagination, um, just to, um, at 20 years old, um, just to sort of be able to show their parents that they could do whatever they wanted to do. How were your parents, did they instill that, those kind of American values in you to get your head down, work hard, and if so, how did you respond to that? Um, in my family, my parents always said, when, when you go to college, so we always knew that my sister and my brother and I would always be going to the university. And did you agree? Did you take that in? Yeah, Subconsciously, was, that's the natural progression of yeah, that was there was never any other choice. Yeah. And um, you just did as... This, but I, I liked learning, and mm -hmm. I liked—I actually liked competing on certain things if I was good at it. Mm -hmm. I didn't like competing at things that I wasn't good at. So obviously. What, what were you good at? I was good at um, uh, English, language, and when I was much, much younger, arithmetic. Later on, not so much in math, <laughs> and um, and uh, I was good at sports. You know, really okay. sort of athletic. What was it about competing that you liked? Was it just the fact that you had the opportunity to excel at what you were good at? And that made you feel good, or yeah, I I just um, uh, I like doing well at things, and I like the feeling of like having the um, accolades of the teacher or my parents. Even though my father, he never said, "Oh, gee, Beth, that's wonderful, it's great." He just expected me to do well, so I didn't really hear that. But my mother, I heard it. And from. how was that then? Trying to constantly thrive to excel and never getting that um, validation. 
it, it's driven me all my life to excel. So it's just like, and, and you, you try to do as well as you can and get the validation externally. And what's, it's driven me my whole life, that sort of feeling of like, like, let me get validation from people that I work with, make sure I do a good job so that they get value from it. And the other thing that it drove me to, <clears throat> the core thing was that recognizing people's value. Mm -hmm. Because what, what's missing when, you, when you're working really hard and they, you don't get the appreciation or your value recognized, yeah. <clears throat> is that you might not feel valued, and that was that was, or your self worth doesn't feel like it's um, very high. Mm -hmm. And I remember um, all my life that I, my key goal was not only to have myself feel valued, but I was aware when I was 20, 24, 26, 30, that I wanted to help other people to have their value recognized, so that that who they were, what they brought to the world, was seen, heard, and acted on as quickly as possible because it hadn't been acted on for me. And I was striving and looking for ways to make sure, to see if I could have that validation. So tell me more about the moment when you realized that, one, you were striving for that in yourself, and two, the moment where you realized that you wanted to empower other people to communicate themselves and be heard. When did that moment happen? It happened um, consciously. It happened quite late in my life. What point? Um, uh, it, it actually, just just before I moved to Europe, mm -hmm. you know, I came here almost eight years ago, and it took <clears throat> all of that time to realize, <clears throat> excuse me, all that t that time to realize that I have a unique gift, if you want to say, to um, help people get clarity mm -hmm. very quickly about the value of their efforts, their intelligence, their projects, their anything that they're working on, mm -hmm. whatever ask they have in the world that they want to ha influence or uh, project into the world and make something happen, mm -hmm. I could actually help them see how to frame that uh, in order to have that realized and then and have it realized quickly. I speed it up. Because one of the things, because it only happened for me eight, eight or nine years ago, yeah. is that it, it took so long for me to have clarity about that that was what I was here on earth to do, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that I wanted to be able to um, help others to sort of, so, so that it wouldn't take them as long. And that's, that's what I do. It's like I, I sort of have a practical approach to, sort of, to getting your value um, seen and heard and acted on. What do you think the impact would have been if you became aware of that gift in you and you were able to harness that as early as your 20s? What impact do you think that would have made? Well, I mean, it's it, you know, I, my I would imagine I would have had an enormous impact on the world, because um, now since I've been here in the last eight years, I've coached just under three thousand companies, and they uh, they raise an average of three point four million um, if they take my two day course, and the ten billion since I've been in Europe, I've raised seven billion of that. The other three billion was in the U.S. before I left. Now the, the abilities that I've sort of pulled together from all of the different. Um, seemingly unconnected things that I've done in my life that I've brought together now to sort of be able to have clear seeing about who you are, what you're doing, what the value is, how to express it, mm -hmm. and to let you then practice it, get it out there, and then get the results really quickly. Yeah. I, if I had been able to do that in my 20s, woof, I don't know. It would yeah. have been amazing. <laughs> You've kind of gone through life collecting all these experiences from all of these different roles. Right. And all of that has kind of culminated into a hot pot to make you so successful that you are now. Right. So, t so tell me a little bit about those roles. Right. And, 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 and your, as you said, your diverse career. Right. What, what, what are some of those roles? Um, I worked um, in the government when I was in my 20s. 
um, in the Department of Energy, and we were we had a renewable energy technology company that was um, helping um, renewable energy tech like solar and wind um, technology uh, engineering companies export their technology overseas so they could form joint ventures with other governments. Mm -hmm. So I would go out and talk to um, d the different companies and get them to join our program and then they came with us and we went to Brazil, we went to Jamaica. And so that ability to begin to stand up and talk in front of people um, when I wasn't an engineer, so they were all in engineering, I had to be able to make it clear what the value was of what mm -hmm. we're doing, and then bring them to other cultures. And I was the person that acted as the interpreter for the other culture because um, I'd lived in France and I went to Brazil and I sort of studied Portuguese for two weeks uh, really quick, and I was able to sort of say half of what I needed to say yeah. and then be the sort of the quasi-interpreter for the group, <laughs> um, uh, allowed me to sort of be in a position where I understood that it just was extremely stimulating to help people connect in a way mm -hmm. that so they could actually make something good happen in the world. Okay. And so that was, that was the first thing that I did. So um, what, what was the one thing that you really took from that? I love the international aspect of, of bringing cultures together. Why? Um, because I, I just realized that we are all, we're all people. We all have sort of there's certain commonalities across all of us that um, allow us to connect. And when you can understand another culture, you can have some empathy for them. Mm -hmm. And then it allows you to coexist in a way and collaborate in a way that allows you to have grow together and make something good happen. Instead of what happens a lot now about sort of the um, disharmony of and lack of understanding about other cultures. So the lack, of, lack of understanding yeah. and the confusion creates the barrier, right? Right, Because it's easier right. to create that barrier than try and connect. Right, that's okay. right. Um, so, okay, so... That was the first that one. That was the first one. What did you do next? Um, but, I mean, actually, before I did that, I'd actually been in the Peace Corps in Ecuador, in South okay. America. And what led you to do that? Um, when I graduated from the university, I didn't have any idea what I wanted to do. And, and this is the other thing, is that I've worked with quite a few um, uh, college students and graduate students and people who are looking for their first job and then trying to transfer their jobs. And I find, I think that the majority of people are not very clear about what they do, what they want to mm -hmm. do. And the ones that are clear, they go through like a midlife crisis where they've, they've been doing something like become a doctor or a lawyer or something and they find that they want to change careers. Is, and that, is the commonality of that because like, like you always had in your mind that you were going to go to college and it was like subconsciously you were like there's no questioning it. Yeah. I think that's, that, I think that's a, a common theme that I've noticed amongst people in my generation that you kind of go through school to get into a good university, you do well in university to get into a good graduate scheme and you kind of climb the corporate ladder and then you get to the point where it's now quarter life crises where you realise, shit, what was all of that? in aid of exactly. it wasn't for me it's not what I wanted to do exactly and that's where that the the millennial burnout comes from and the, the quarter-life crisis as well that's right and um, so before I w worked in the government I had <clears throat> graduated from the university and been in France for, for a year while I was in university came back to the US and then I went to Ecuador because I didn't know what I wanted to do and I needed time to figure it out I happened to play the classical violin and they needed um, a violinist in the Ecuadorian National Symphony in the Peace Corps. I know it's an odd thing. <laughs> and so I went down there. So I'd had experiences in France and then in Ecuador and then I went to Brazil and the, into Jamaica um, for, my, for the Department of Energy. And um, then I um, 
while I was in Washington D.C., I was playing football, which is soccer in America. Soccer. Yeah. yeah, and I was I became a fanatic f um, footballer. What did you <laughs> love about it? Oh, uh, I, I'm I'm I was a sprinter. I was fast, so I was a center forward, the striker. And it's the the speed, the 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 sort of it's like it's like a dance, the choreography of of being in tune with the other people, so that you can and then making the goal and the and the thrill of making the goal or assisting to make a goal and have your team win was like it was it was amazing. It was so was it the team element of it, it that you really loved? Because the, the connection and the unwritten and unspoken. It was a team element and it's the physicality of it. Yeah. So it's like, you know, you're, you're, you just push yourself and it's in, because you're having fun and you're outside, you don't think about the fact that you're exercising. Yeah. So it's like, you're just, you just get in better, better shape. We used to work, we used to play four times a week. We went to Europe and played and against the Belgians, the Germans and the, and the um, Dutch and we got just annihilated by the Dutch and the um, Belgians but we beat the Germans <laughs> <laughs> there we my, go. Team, my team did so I was the player coach for a while then we got a professional coach from Jamaica so you were doing this as actually almost like a career no no, no you, this was a side this, this hobby. was a side thing okay. while I was working in the Department of Energy fine okay. so I was and so what, what that did is I was leading the team as the player coach and then I saw how to communicate with people to sort of get them to work as a team and um, uh, you know, the organization of it, all of that when you play in a sports what team. What did you love more, being a player or being a coach? I know you're a player coach, but if you had to have made the decision. Player, definitely a player. Why? Yeah. Well, it's just, you know, you get, it's, the, it's the thrill of, of <laughs> developing your skill, getting on the ball, working together and making the goals. It's just like, and winning. It was like amazing. We were really good. <laughs> Way before me. Well, uh, you, as a, you as a centre forward, I'm sure. <laughs> so, okay, so then what next? Where did you move? Then I moved. Well, not even directly afterwards, just the next significant yeah. role that you, you went into. Um, then I... Um, you know, I... I, <clears throat> I had worked... <clears throat> excuse me, I moved back to California. And I worked in a, a bank, <clears throat> which was Crocker Bank, and um, international international marketing. And I, um, I worked there for a couple of years, and I and I just hated it because it's like you know when you work in a big corporate environment, when you have a personality like mine, which sort of speaks up, says has this sort of direct communication about what I see is happening, and I can pick up really clearly what the dynamics are and sort of see what could work and I do the research I need to do to find out whether the project they're working on is, is going to work out or not mm -hmm. and they don't really want someone internally in a corporation that it's sort of is a, a soothsayer, truthsayer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, I was miserable there. So I, I left and I How went... How long were you there for? How long two, did you Two and a half years. That? That's a long time. Yeah. What impact did that have? Was it a snowball effect that accumulated and kind of brought you down or were you aware of how much you hated it on a daily basis but went through it no it's the f the former it brought me down mm. it brought me really way down because you know, were you sorry were you aware that it was bringing you down while it was bringing you down or? oh yes oh my god I used to, I used why to didn't you why didn't you just take action to the, yeah. so that's an interesting question because what I find is that um, uh, women and men have different tolerances for situations in work or life okay. um, and stay longer than many men do. So over the years I've seen the research that shows that if, if men are in a situation where it's unhealthy or they're not valued, this is a generalization, yeah. that they, they leave like fairly quickly. Women 
we tend to sort of try to stay in and see if we can make it work. Why is that? You know, it's partly, I think, being, uh, th we're supposed to be the sort of facilitator, collaborator, and make sure things are, you know, I don't know. It's like, that's what women do. I don't know. I think it's women do in general. Many, many women do it. And I think that men, there are many men that also stay and should leave from a job. But I find that in general, it's, it's, um, it's very different. So I, so I stayed there two and a half years. I, um, I left and... Well, so, so just to stay on that a little bit, what was the biggest thing that you took from that experience? That I... Was there any positive that came out of it? I made some good friends. <laughs> <laughs> um, I... Uh, what's the positive that I took out of it? Yeah, not... I, don't, I can't really think of anything particularly positive. I mean, one thing is that I knew how to negotiate to get a better salary. I was good at it. Do so you think it gave you more clarity over what you wanted moving forward because you, know, you knew for sure what you didn't want? No. Uh, so actually, that's, good. that's a very interesting point. Clarity. It gave me clarity about some things I didn't want, but I was quite actually lost about what I did want. I was really unclear. And were you okay with that? Uh, no. That no, frustrated you? No, it frustrated me, and I've always been driven to find out what is, who am I, what am I supposed to be doing, and so I start searching and investigating new avenues. So what did that investigation, investigatory process look like? I started doing what I call informational interviewing with people in different um, uh, okay. disciplines. Was that a career, or was that just, I need to find out what I want to do, so I'm just going to go and interview people to figure yeah, it out? Yeah, it was that. Tell, okay, that's really what, what made? How old were you when you made that decision to do that? I was in my early 30s. Why? What were the steps in in putting that together? Well, I, I had a model in my father that he he was um, unhappy in what he was doing in his twenties as a cash register salesman, and he hated it. He was miserable. He had horrible migraines all the time. He was just miserable, and because he's not a salesman, and he hated it. So then he interviewed. He found um, an interview for to be an aerospace engineer. He went to the interview, and the the man hired him because they both. <laughs> Cut off the tip of their finger in a in an accident at work earlier. The mm. two of them missed, were missing the top of the middle finger, and the guy liked him, and he hired him, and he flew. He moved our whole family out to California, and my father just because he lost the tip of his finger, <laughs> and because my dad, they they sort of got along, right? And so, <laughs> so my we moved to California, and so I was like nine years old, and my dad was involved in the um, aerospace industry, and. Um, for eight years, but four years into it, he saw that aerospace was going down, so he went to law school at night. So he was in his mid-30s when he went, no, he was 39 when he went to law school. How do you think that made an impact on him, changing, almost changing your identity? Because when you change your job, so much of what we do now, and especially more so back then, what you do as your job is so tied to your identity. So going through that shift at that age, how do you think that impacted him? I think that um, he was super insecure starting out as an aerospace engineer when he didn't have any aerospace background mm -hmm. and he hadn't been in, in engineering, for, he was selling cash, cash registers for a long time. So he, but my father was brilliant actually and so he learned and he did super well. So it helped him get a sense of self and self value. Yeah. But, um, and then he went to law school at 39 and he ended up um, at the top of his class and um, couldn't get hired because he was too old by then. He was 42. Yeah. Um, when he, and they saw the top law firms, they said they would hire him except that he was ever his age and they didn't believe he would stay. So he started his own law firm. So that model of, <laughs> um, that model of, of just reinventing yourself and 
doing what you needed to do and exploring different avenues was just what you did. I didn't know that other people didn't do that. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like just sort of, I just knew that if you weren't happy in something and you wanted to try something else, you could do it. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is since I've moved to Europe um, eight years ago, you know, that's not what happens in Europe. Mm -hmm. It's really unusual, yeah. you know, and the U.S. allows you to sort of learn and reframe and become different and other than what you started out unless you sort of find yourself mm -hmm. no matter what age you are. And that doesn't happen in Europe very easily. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's much more difficult here. So just so clear, what you did and at that point where you were uncertain, do you mean that you went for lots of job interviews or you went to interview people in lots of different areas to figure I out? I went to interview people in lots of different areas. Well, I'm very interested to like, talk about that a little bit more. So how did that, what, what, did, what did you do? I just so how call, did you start I that? I just called people up and told them that I had been working in banking and that I was interested in making a transition, mm -hmm. that I was interested in whatever field they were. So some of them, like I um, was interested in... Uh, uh, architecture and interior design and th just something that had color form texture something that was that was tangible yep. and different from from the banking sort of yeah. world which is just all in your head and there's no head or heart connection yeah and I and um, and so I started inter interviewing people architects and how many interviews designers. did you conduct over what period of time um, it was over uh, about nine months, I think it was, where I started. And I, I did, I don't know, 20 different interviews for people. What was the, was there a one common question that you asked every single one of those people? And if so, what was that? Um, I asked them um, a few common questions. So mm -hmm. uh, how did they get into their, um, their uh into their practice, into their work. I mean, how did they were attracted to it? What did they do to get to where they were? What was it that they liked about their work the most? What if they're giving advice to someone like me, who had this background of working in the government and then a banking background, um, and and had no background in mm -hmm. architecture or whatever? What uh, what would they advise? You know, what would and so they would tell me what they what they would advise me to do. And so. Um, uh, and so what they advised me to do was, uh, because I was interested in this, the color idea, et cetera, they, they um, advised me to s start an art business because to do, be in, become an in interior designer, which is not my thing because I like the interiors, et cetera, but it's extremely detail-oriented and, mm -hmm. like, and that was like not me. But you could be an art dealer and then to be an architect, you have to go to school forever, et cetera. And um, I was older, so I thought, no, that won't work. So, and I also, um, I had two kids by then. And my son was very, very ill, and I needed to be home with him more. So I decided to become an art dealer for a while and started my own art business, learned about art, figured out how to get my network and marketing. Did you have any background in art before? Yeah, I was an art. I studied art history in France. Okay. And um, loved it. I so loved it was your real it. passion. I, I loved it. What I was, did you What did you love about it? Um, I loved. Um, the it's sort of a visceral feeling to sort of look at a painting and then I, I studied under an, um, a French artist named Jean Thomas and he took us like Socrates with 12 little disciples following him around Paris and took us to different museums and he would tell us stories about what happened to these artists mm -hmm. what, what they were doing in their life what was happening to them in their life so when you looked at the painting you you were just immersed in this other world mm -hmm. and 
I you could see deeper than yeah, just the. That's right. So you understood what you were looking at and why. It context was is everything. And context is everything yeah. for everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so that that was that I loved, yeah. and um, I think, I think one of the things that I would suggest to people that they, in order to find out who you are and what it is that you want to do, yeah. so it doesn't take you as long as it took me, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, is to pay attention to the little ahas that you have inside yourself over the course of your life. So when I was in my uh, mid-twenties, I, um, I had a huge aha seeing that there was this, a graduate school um, course at American University on um, was organizational dynamics. So it's like basically how com- groups communicate and how to get them to work together and collaborate more. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading, looking at that and saying, oh my God, that looks really interesting. And then I just didn't do anything with it because I was working, I, I just wouldn't, I wasn't paying attention to the internal ahas that I had. Do you, do you know what I mean? I know what you mean. How, how can you speed up the process of figuring out what those aha, ahas are? Well, you have to or be... Or can you rush it? Does it have to come over time? No, I, I think it's a matter of being aware. So we all have an internal landscape. And there's some people who are, are um, uh, tuned into their internal landscape, and there's others of us that aren't as what well. What do you mean by that? Your subconscious, your gut? Yeah, it's your it's being paying attention to how you feel and how you react to things that you come across in life. Is there an internal feeling of joy, of opening, interest, uh, curiosity by Just something? Posit- overall positive feelings. Is yes, if all of those. If yeah. you want to describe them yeah. as all positive, yes, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because uh, positive is vague for me. So, so, okay. so, so the joy, curiosity, interest. Um, even if you're sort of, if something feels like it's sort of a conundrum, you're not clear about what it is. Something that's that is intriguing, you know. Notice that and write it down. Say, so like, okay, this is what these are the things this week or this month or these six months that I've been writing down that I've just noticed. Because most people, the, I was focused. I was um, my whole upbringing. Everything was focused on being externally aware, mm-hmm. so, but not necessarily internally aware. Yeah. And so that's why it took me so long. And what's happened is that I find so many people that I meet over the course of my life, and I've met them, that are, um, the, it's the same, either, sometimes they're not externally aware, but they're definitely not internally aware. And so I, it's being, that internal awareness is what has to be sort of tuned up tuned on and acted on. Mm-hmm. And the acting on it, it means that you have to sort of think about, stop and think about what, what you're feeling at any given moment. It's the self-awareness and I kind of take, it takes guts and angst to act on those cues and those internal social cues because more often than not, they may contradict the external cues and the, the external pressures that you might be going through. Right. So where, at what point did you start becoming aware of those aha moments? Were you writing them down from... No, I actually, um, I wrote down certain things, like to come to Europe, two years before I came to Europe, I wrote down, I did something called a vision board, mm-hmm. and I cut out all these... I've got a vision board. <laughs> so I cut out all these... It's, manif- it's manifesting, isn't it? It's manifesting. Do you, do you believe in Oh, in absolutely. How, at what point did you start believing in that? Because for, to manifest, you need to have a vision, and how were you able to have a vision back then? when you weren't so clear over exactly what it is you want to achieve and why you wanted to achieve it at that point? Well, um, what happened is when I, um, uh, I, I went through, ap- after I developed uh, this art business, mm-hmm. I became really, really um, interested in knowing 
if something, if I could create something with my own hands, because I had re represented about 30 artists for a few years, and I, um, and I had lots of clients, and, <laughs> and I just, I, I wanted to know if what I would, who I would be if I could create something outside myself. So I took a course in how to draw mandalas. So mandalas are, in Sanskrit, means sacred circle, and it's, it's artwork in a circle. So the Tibetan monks, they do mandala out of sand and different colored sands, and I did them with colored pencils on black paper. Okay. And the course of creating these mandalas, I didn't think I was creative, and I didn't, I didn't think I could draw anything. But what happened is I had this sort of... Had, Drawing my first mandala, I had a sense of uh, ferocity of focus and a sense of evolving um, uh, creativity that, that when I was creating these amazing images, when I thought I couldn't draw stick figures before that, and that, <laughs> that what happened is it, the, drawing the mandalas is a meditative process. And so while you're drawing it, you're, you're aware on, on sort of on a level that of to sort of all things around you, but it's an internal awareness because you have sort of an internal eye about what it is that you want to draw. You don't know what the end result's going to be, but it's an evolving sort of image that comes through. What did that teach you about acquiring new skills and the ease of doing so? It changed my life, everything in my life. I left my husband a week later after I drew my first mandala. <laughs> it just, it just was, I, it, I thought to myself, if I can do this, believing you know, the day before I drew one, that I couldn't, that I wasn't creative, and I couldn't draw anything, forget it, and I drew this amazing image, and I was in a class, a workshop with 30 people, and 26 of us were not artists, and all 30 of us drew unbelievable images. It was like mind-blowing. And so then I started to study over the next few years, how was it possible for all these people to be able to create something without any formal training or anything? And part of it was the process that I learned, and, um, it was developed by Dr. Judith Cornell, and um, she she used um, guided imagery and sound, and a certain ambient sound, certain type of music that she played while you're drawing, and you don't talk while you're drawing, and you're able to sort of first sketch something, you go into this guided imagery, you get a, an image of what it is you want to sketch or draw, just not the whole thing, just like a line. Sometimes I only draw one line or a little circle and just little things, and then you just start to draw. and what. It it was it was amazing. It was an amazing process, and I started to um, draw every day for for years. And then I started teaching other people how to draw the mandalas. And then I I, I played the violin, and so I would play the violin, and I learned how to play a triple chambered flute because it's it's um, it's the it's a huaca, it's called H U A C A, and it's from Peru, and it's just this haunting sound. So I learned how to play that, and then I played the violin with it and then I had other type of ambient music and I, I trained people and I, became, I started training uh, people, Stanford alumni and corporations. I worked for Cisco doing that and I, 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 <laughs> I went um, at the University of Texas in their executive MBA program. I taught the executive MBA um, students every year for 14 years how to draw mandalas because what it does is it opens up um, your, the flow of your um, creativity to see the world differently, to see yourself differently and see the world. And the main thing I did first was I taught people with life-threatening illnesses. Those, so they had cancer and lupus and um, how to draw mandalas because it's a very meditative healing thing. And you, when, you're, when you're sick, when you're ill with cancer or another um, 
any disease like that, you become labeled as that disease instead of the person that you are. So the mandala, then you can see yourself in, in uh, outside yourself. Mm. And um, it, it changed my life. Can I make an observation? So it seems like a common pattern to, especially what you're doing now and that, that experience that you just described, is you start something that you're passionate about, you master it, it does something for you, it unlocks something inside of you, and your immediate go-to reaction is to use that knowledge and teach it to other people so they can reach the same insight. Where, I, I, want, I want to know where that comes from. The, the unknowing of self, the lack of awareness of self, the, the, the limiting beliefs and limits that we believe about ourselves equals suffering. And I can help people stop suffering. It's I can help them. <laughs> Why is that fulfilling for you, though? <laughs> when I was a little girl, <clears throat> I was eight years old, I wanted to be paid to be Beth, to be who I am. And who was Beth? Over the course of my life, I've always wanted to help people to have their value seen and heard so they feel better, so that they are better, so they don't struggle as much. And, I, and I've had a lot of different struggles in my life, not more than a lot of others, and some it's less than some more than others, doesn't matter. But the fact is, I, I found ways to open up to things that brought me joy, a sense of clarity about who I am, and I, and I can do it quickly. Everybody's put here on earth for a reason. And everybody, most people that I've met, if not everybody, is sort of looking for to find out why am I here and what is the value that I bring to the world. Why? Why do people need that? Why is that innate to human beings? We, we need meaning in our life. Why? It, we're not just here just to eat and sleep and drink and... and, and Does that need for meaning? and the suffering that comes from not having meaning. Is that unique to us as a species, as animals, or is that just a result of our civilization? I mean, you know, human beings have evolved over centuries, right? Uh, of thousands of years, and have become um, more and more aware of other people's humaneness, meaning, it's the idea of having compassion for others. And, you know, before the, the 18th century, um, when, when there was an explosion of uh, books and people became literate, um, it was really impo almost impossible for people to see from other people's point of view. Because of the lack of communication yeah, you, and empathy you, that you, comes you, with that. When you read a story, you're looking through someone else's point of view. Mm -hmm. People would tell stories, and you could do it through the oral, verbal, mm -hmm. telling stories. Um, but but you, the reading of stories allowed people to actually get in someone else's mindset. And now we have like VR and AR where you can actually put, <laughs> put on VR glasses and you are someone else. Yeah. You know, so we've carried it that far. But that ability to see someone else's point of view are, allows us to be able to um, understand that there might be more to life than just eating and, and surviving. Okay, so art dealer, artist, what happened next? I just took courses and got training in facilitation, yeah. and um, and I learned how to be a facilitator for corporate groups, and I learned how to be what's called a, a graphic facilitator. So it's a visual practitioner, and what that is is you in meetings you put lots of big paper on meetings, meaning like huge meetings. So I would draw on the wall the, the sort of metaphors and essence of what what they were communicating. So they had a visual memory of what was happening in the in. 
How was your brain working during that time? Well, that's the point. So that, that's exactly why I brought it up. So what happens is you have to um, you develop your, your listening so that you listen for the unspoken and spoken messages that, that they are, they're communicating because they're talking and in real time you're drawing all of these metaphors on there that shows the journey that they're going on. So what that did for me, I did, I did that for two and a half years. Such an interesting skill to have. Yeah. It's not just listening from a different perspective. It's reading between the lines and communicating it in such a visual way. Yeah, well, I, you know, I wasn't a trained artist. I just was doing the mandala, yeah. so I had to really learn sort of how to do some things representational in order to be able to get them. So g give me an example of something that was said in the meeting and how that transferred yeah. onto your... Yeah, so, um, for instance, um, the, for this hospital, they were, the 60 people were talking, <clears throat> and so I drew... Um, some cliffs over here and some mountains in the back while they're talking and then a, sort of a tribe, some figures around a campfire, you know, a bonfire in the middle, and then some people on the outskirts looking down because they weren't all united at first. And so then I, I was putting the, the, a timeline of where they started, um, <laughs> where they started uh, with the, the ideas for the hospital. And in the end, they, there was a, a path I drew that went towards the sun of, of what they wanted to create. And I put some of the dates on the timeline out away from the bonfire where the figures were coming down and they were gathering more together, drew them going towards the sun. And what it is that, that visual group memory, 83% of, of us learn visually. That's mm -hmm. we have to see visually. So what happens is when you're talking in a normal meeting without any visual representation, it's just... You're learning um, orally, A-U-R-A-L-L-Y, mm -hmm. right? By your hearing and whatever you can see in terms of their communication, whatever you write down yourself. This is then visually getting out the ideas and the, you see the path of where you started from where you're going. How much information did you take in and T learn? Tons. Because it's not just, it's not, you're saying that 83% of us learn visually, but you're not just learning visually because you need to take it in. You need to translate it in your mind and then put it out visually. So you must have you must have taken a hell of a lot of information. Yes, I took in information, but what the key thing, the reason this is important for what I do now mm -hmm. as a pitch coach, mm -hmm. is that I learned to listen to the unspoken communication and the spoken communication and pull it together to sort of understand how to represent it so that they that communicate to everybody immediately in the moment. So how can I how can I give feedback now to 30 teams I gave feedback to in, um, in Munich? Um, they were in um, healthcare teams uh, about a month and a half ago. That's the most I've ever done in one day. They only had a few minutes each, but I could get the essence of what it was they were talking about, what they needed to do, what were the key things they needed to change, and how and what was important to them. I usually, in a day, I do between five and 15 teams. I just did um, 12 teams in, mm -hmm. in Birmingham with uh, their innovation center. Um, in the last two days, and um, so so there, there, it's like I developed my ability to listen for um, what's said, what's spoken and unspoken. The thing about it also is that many of the startups that I work with, um, they're struggling, right? Yeah. And they're they're looking at they might have tried some things and they've failed, or it hasn't been working for a while. They're very frustrated. And I've been through many things in my life that I've tried, and some of them I've failed miserably, mm -hmm. in a humiliating way, in a devastating way. It's been horrible. How has your perception of failure evolved over time? Well, you you just have to keep going. You know, you have to you have to keep going. Has that always been your mindset? Yeah, always. Failure? Yeah, always. I mean, you uh, there's two sides to it. When you fail, and when sort of the um, society says that you fail, you have to sort of decide, like, 
who am I? What am I really worth? Mm -hmm. What's my value really? Am I going to let this failure define me or not? Mm -hmm. And um, and then and for and it can take a while. Sometimes it's taken me a couple of years to mm -hmm. come out of some of the things that have happened for, to me that have mm -hmm. been just devastating. And um, uh, you know, I failed at my marriage. You know, I, I, I there's there's a lot of things that that you, it just takes time to sort of work through the um, sense of failure, the emotions, the feeling of who am I, how can I go forward, and lack of confidence. Mm -hmm. I was working for a firm in, um, in San Francisco um, for off and on for 10 years, and I've been working for like four or five years for them, and I was a consultant, and I'd worked um, 17 days a month, and then I went up to uh, Seattle to do a, a, a meeting with them, uh, where they said that I was their secret weapon and because I was bringing the cultures together and I was communicating clearly and the next day I got home and they fired me on an email. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So that took me a little while to get over. That yeah. took me a couple of years because I was like, I couldn't believe it. It was like, what? I'd done everything well, everything was great and they, they, they just let me go on an email. And, and why did that happen? Because there was someone else in the, in the organization that was threatened by me and she had sort of all politics, isn't it? Yeah. So, um, so, but it, that that devastated me, right? Because it was like I would. This is the thing about wanting value from externally. It's mm -hmm. like I'd worked so hard and I'd done such a good job. And it's and, not fair. And as it's well. not fair. And they they'd won, you know, a four hundred million dollar project. I I built you know fifteen teams up for them. I I'd done oh my god so much work with them. Mm -hmm. Seventeen days a month of work days a month that I was working with them, and um, and then it just disappeared. Gone overnight. It, overnight, <laughs> and I'm, I was a single mom yeah. with my kids. It was really quite devastating. So, how do you pick yourself up from that and figure out how to, you know, how that's going to How do you work? pick yourself up from that? Well, it took me a while. It took me a couple of years. It wasn't something that it came easily. So that's what I'm saying is that I, 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 I took long time, and I now. I've, I've had other people that I know that have gotten fired or, or can't figure out what they're doing, and I help them understand how to what their strengths are and how to sort of navigate things to move forward. How do you forward. do that? By, uh, by working with them and asking them um, uh, questions about the things that they, what are the things that they've done, the, the, the aha moments, I ask them for those aha moments. Mm -hmm. What are the things that they've done, what projects have they worked on, what were the parts of the projects, describe the projects to me and what you like, what, and was it projects, is it, is, it, is it certain sports, what are the things in your life that have brought you joy? What is the quickest way you could give anyone who's watching or listening an exercise they can do by themselves to help them come closer, a step closer to this realization. If you could think of anything that can be done by yourself. Yeah. Um, I, I, it's a matter of uh, writing it down, right? So, so you don't have to write the idea down even. You just have to notice, first of all, if you're not tuned in mm -hmm. at all to yourself, you have to actually just mark down with a little mark on something on your tablet or whatever. Every time that you think of something that makes, that delights you, that interests you, intrigues you, or causes you to be curious, um, that you notice, that you think, wow. And then just mark down every day how many times you do that. Then you do that for a week. 
then the second week you start to write down the things, just describe the things that you're noticing. Mm -hmm. And then in the third week you start to look at, you know, what are the types of things, are there commonalities across of it. Mm -hmm. And then in the fourth week you start to say, you start to look at it and say, okay, if there's commonalities in these different things, what are the, what, what are the things I've done in my past mm -hmm. that sort of um, uh, support me looking into it more out of the things here you've got to you've got to basically start putting like colored dots on it mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like you put your you, learning visually right yeah that's yeah. right and you say like the, well, different size dots and different colors you can say red dots or blue say blue dots are the ones that I think I, I, I like the most you have to cluster them mm -hmm. and then you put the di different colored dots on them so you say you know I've in my past I've done um, three projects that handle um, uh, uh, the production line in a, in, a, in a manufacturing in the manufacturing industry, where I was in charge of um, you know making sure increasing the digitalization of it, and I did that that part these part these parts well. Or and this time I went out and I played um, you know I did was I skied downhill and I loved you know doing the downhill run. What are the things that you like? And then see, pull together. Um, what are the things that you feel that you can then make money from? So I always tell people. You have to look at what what is it you like to do best. Mm -hmm. What is the thing that has the um, highest ability to make you money if you mm -hmm. have to support yourself, and what are the things that are easiest to act on first? Okay. Last last question on that. Out of all those emotions that you stated before, the joy, the curiosity, um, what is the most important one to act on when you identify these aha moments? One may make you feel curious, one may make you feel joy, one might make you feel happiness. Of all those emotions, which one should you listen to the most? Um, you know, joy and happiness, it's sort of like the, the same thing. I think what happened for me when I started um, changing my presentation coaching from uh, for corporates where I was helping them win huge projects, mm -hmm. um, and I shifted it to pitch coaching for tech, um, what I realized is out of all the things I was doing for um, these, the corporates, which I was doing um, strategic planning, I was doing facilitation, I was doing conflict resolution, mm -hmm. executive coaching, all these different things. I was doing presentation coaching. What was the thing out of all of them that I loved to do that I felt the most joy from? Mm -hmm. And it was the presentation coaching, which then I adapted for pitch coaching. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so it's uh, it just I just was... I, it's just realization that I that was what I liked the best. Okay. Yeah, and uh, and I and and also in the tech area, there's money in the, in technology. Mm -hmm. There wasn't money in some of the corporate things I was doing in terms of the type of corporates they were. There were a lot of um, healthcare systems and um, architect firms who were doing uh, working in healthcare systems and uh, hospitals. And so in that particular arena, it didn't it wasn't as lucrative. And in the tech field, it's can be lucrative, but also there's a huge need for it. So that's the other thing. What, what is, what's the market like? Mm -hmm. you know, is there an unmet need? Are there skills that people need that you can offer Timing. Them? Right? It's the timing. Yeah. And that's the research I've done is that 40% um, of uh, whether you'll be successful or not is the timing. Mm -hmm. And my coming to Europe eight years ago was the perfect timing. Okay. And that's was like wonderful. Okay. Can you sum up the essence of what you do now, if you could? I help my clients express the value of what they're doing quickly and powerful to get the results that they desire and deserve mm -hmm. quickly. Quickly. Very quickly. That's a big thing, very quickly. So the purpose element and the doing good with your passion, 
is something that you've identified as a common theme for your life. Right. Where does that come into play with what you're doing now? Um, I've realized since I have started um, doing the pitch coaching for tech companies that it it aligns with my purpose, and that my purpose is to do um, as much good as possible for as many people as possible as quickly as possible. And uh, this, I coach thousands of companies, and the majority of the companies are doing something that really has a positive impact in the world. So whether it's um, cleaning up the water, whether it's finding um, clean, uh, healthy food, whether it's uh, biotech, med tech, or digital health tech devices that sort of help cure people and find cures for people or help reduce suffering, whether it's um, uh, blockchain companies that are helping you know, more secure communication and faster communication, Uh, whether it's, um, you know, the Yale Quantum Institute, they have quantum physicists that are creating faster computing, lots of things. Mm -hmm. And how do you do it? How do you achieve these phenomenal results time and time again? It's not left down to to fate or luck. How do you do do it? Um, I have developed... um, a way of relating to my clients and conveying to my clients um, the tools and techniques that they need and, and then I give them an opportunity to practice. It's called deliberate practice. So um, like in a two-day course that I offer, they get to get up and give me a one, this is for startups for instance, they give me a one-minute pitch and I give them one or two minutes of feedback. And because I can scan them and I can see their body language, I, I used to dance the salsa for 10 years and I taught the salsa, I performed the salsa. And I um, was, when you're teaching dance, you have to sort of watch every nuance of someone's body so you can see what's out of alignment, what's in alignment. So I have that. I took singing lessons um, and just for a couple of years and so I learned that there are three voices. There's a head voice, a throat voice, and a chest voice and so when I'm listening to people's voices I can tell where their voice is, where they're speaking from, which voice, where they need to adjust their voice and how to do it. The things that I've done in my life it's like putting them all together and so I'm scanning scanning them, giving them the tools that they need and then giving them an opportunity to practice five times in two days. They can have five different opportunities to pitch and they get feedback from me then they I, I teach them about what to say, what not to say and how to say it and why, and why it matters. And then in the afternoon, they give their five-minute pitch, for instance, with slides. They get feedback from me and the other people in the group. The next day, they get to have a three-on-three with two other companies. So there's three companies together. They get feedback from them. And they're all in the same conversation, these people now, because the first day, they've learned what to say and what not to say. Then they meet with me one-on-one. They pitch again. And then at the end of the day, they pitch um, a final time, which is the fifth time. And it's there's total transformation. I just had that happen again in Birmingham with these uh, 12 teams that I coached and they started out and there was so much that needed to be um, adjusted. And the end of the second day, they always, one of the main things that the other, the people that I'm working with say at the end of the time that I'm working with them is that they can't believe the transformation of everybody. And for me, it's such a feeling of satisfaction because in two days, 
they have transformed. And once they know what to say, what not to say, and how to say it, they can't unknow it. So every conversation that they have now about their business, they're going to understand what they need to say to the person they're talking to. So I basically, if it's focused on investors, they know what the investor is looking for. I can I help them if it's focused on clients. I help them if it's focused on partners. I help them as if, if it's focused, they're pitching to the, the, the board of their company. I help them if they're pitching to the C-suite. I help them if they're an entrepreneur and they're pitching to the this, to this C-suite to get funding for a new business unit. I help them if they're pitching as a researcher to get um, uh, uh, grants from um, the EU. I, I, it's like you. Once I understand who they're pitching to, then I can help them really quick, quickly um, frame the value of what they're they're doing, so that the people that are listening to them get it, yep. and they decide whether they want to act or not. What do you think, in your opinion, is the impact or importance of the transformation happening in such a condensed period of time? I think there's a false belief that many of us have that it has to take a long time to actually change. And change can happen very quickly. It's, it's a matter of knowing what to do, how to do it, getting the practice to do it, getting the feedback about the practice, practicing it, and then you can change. And it doesn't have to take a long time. <laughs> Part of the reason it takes such a short time, too, is because I don't only work one-on-one. -on -one. I work many, many times with groups. So that what happens is that the groups, if there's 10 companies, they're seeing you know, ten other com nine other companies do some things, that, and there's commonalities of things that are working, things that aren't working, hearing my feedback over and over again. And so they're learning much more, much more quickly. It's almost like that social peer pressure element as well. So what, what do you think is most important? The advice that you give and the feedback that you give or the teaching in and amongst the group by themselves? Um, it's not a question of most. It's a question of all. It's all equally important. Because, um, and sometimes you can't have the feedback of groups because I work one-on-one -on -one with companies and one-on-one -on -one with people uh, individually and they can come really a far away on that also. But it just adds extra value, a lot of extra value, if you can have other people um, there also so you, in a group so you can see what's happening. Some people don't need that though. So I, I worked with a company that came over from um, the U.S. and um, you know, he's, he was looking for 12 million to raise 12 million, and he'd been raised, he already raised a few million, but he needed to raise 12 more. And he didn't need to be in a group of people because he, he had specific things that he had, specific goals that he had to sort of reframe his, his pitch. We worked on it, and then he went out and he raised 1.6 million immediately towards the, he needed a bridge to get to the 12 million, and now he's, he's getting really close to getting it closed. What is the accomplishment? the one single accomplishment in your time of pitch coaching that has stood out for you, for whatever reason? Well, um, this last December, I, um, for the last six months of last year, actually it was three or four months, but I signed the contract six months of the last year, um, I had coached two consortia um, out of the European Institute of Technology. Um, they were bidding for 450 million euros each from the EU with another opportunity for matching funds that would go up to 1.6 billion. And the one, one of the groups was uh, focused on urban mobility and the other was focused, focused on manufacturing. And I had been coaching them um, to pitch against other consortia that were competing with them. And they pitched within one, the urban mobility group pitched one day and the manufacturing the next day 
and um, I heard on that second day that they had both won. So, wow. so they're going to get the money for seven years to bring innovation around urban mobility and in Europe and help establish Europe as a as a world leader in urban mobility and also in manufacturing to sort of help us bring Europe sort of up to speed in manufacturing and to um, succeed and excel in manufacturing developing technology that um, allows uh, Europe to sort of be a market leader. So leading on from that, what do you think is the most common mistakes that startups make when pitching to investors and communicating they, their idea? They don't, the first thing is they don't understand the mindset of the investor. So they don't understand what are the signals that the investor are looking for to hear, looking to hear in order to, to um, uh, actually take action, a positive action for them. That's the first thing. And the second thing, because they aren't in the investor's mindset, because the investor is looking for reasons to say no. They're not looking for Why? reasons to say yes. Because uh, they have a, a typical investor, um, a investor, for instance, will have 1,200 um, decks, pitch decks, come across their desk every year. Then they might meet with 500 of them in the year, face to face. They might do due diligence for 50 of them. On 50, they might invest in 10 and only get the return on investment they need on one. Yep. So they're they're always evaluating and sort of cutting down, saying no, 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 because they know they're only going to get the, the money out of one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, uh, like a 10% out of the 10 companies, there's it's a 10%, mm -hmm. you know, return in terms of who's going to 10% of them are going to make the money. And so they're they, and why and why 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 because the pitch they say they look for for the nose. The, the pitch is terrible. They might have the wrong team. There might be the timing might be wrong. The investors are it's at their end of the liquidity of their fund, so they're not as interested in it. So they're not looking really to say yes as much. Um, they might be um, ready to catch a plane, so they're, they're, gonna just, they're not that interested. They're going to say no, or it's Monday, it's Friday. Who knows? They're people. You know, they've got lots of things on their mind, and so you know, you have to really capture their attention. Attention is the only currency that matters. If you don't capture their attention right up front, they're not going to. Um, be interested to respond and so understanding all of that and what to include and what not to include is really key and most most startups say way too much yeah they go on and on about the wrong things so what's the best way to command attention you have to tell a story in the beginning a problem a put your problem in the terms of a story that captures their Imagination that allows them to go wow, or, or or that has to be real and easy to relate to. What happens if someone isn't isn't creative enough to come up with a story? What's an easy way to facilitate the start of you putting the context of the problem that you're solving into a relatable story? What would be the stepping stones in starting that? Well, first of all, you have to understand what's the current problem that you're solving. So, mm -hmm. so many startups they go right into their solution. Mm -hmm. <laughs> No. <laughs> so, what's the problem you're, star so you're, you're, you're solving for? And um, is there an example of some? So, there's there's about five different ways to start a story, right? I mean, to start off a, a pitch, and you can start it with um, uh, being provocative by doing something that just shocks people. Like I always use the Bill Gates example yeah, with the mosquitoes. Yeah, the they has a jar at a TED talk at a jar of. Um, Leaves, but it was filled with mosquitoes. He took the he took the top off the jar, let all the mosquitoes out, and said, "Why should poor people be the only ones who get malaria?" Right. So he's giving them these two things. He's doing with that. 
He's allowing them first to, um, uh, well, the first thing he's doing is that he's grabbing their attention. So that's what he needed to do. But the second thing is, it's a problem that a Western audience doesn't normally have. Mm -hmm. They don't worry about mosquitoes with malaria. So he's making the problem real and relatable. So he immediately cap captures their attention, and now, then they're going to be listening. So you, that's what you need to do to stand out. Because these investors, list, they look at 1200 a year. Actually, I talked to a, a, a large investment firm um, in uh, one of the top three in the UK a couple months ago, and they actually look at 2,000 decks a year. So, wow. yeah, so it, it's, it's, you have to grab their attention mm -hmm. and make them remember you. Mm -hmm. So how much of an importance does self-awareness, kind of linking back into, into what you were just saying, how much of an importance does self-awareness have in, again, pitching and communicating your vision to investors? Well, that's a good question, Toby, because, <laughs> because um, it actually matters quite a bit. And one of the things that I do that I think is extremely helpful for my clients is I will tell them what is getting in the way of them being effective mm -hmm. in what they're saying and how they're saying it. So, first of all, I can tell them what's missing in terms of what the, the parts of the story that the... Um, the investor wants to hear. Sometimes they don't have their business model uh, developed or clear. Sometimes they don't have a product market fit. Sometimes, and sometimes they have traction in the market, but they don't tell you about it. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes they have an amazing advisor who's, you know, the world's expert in whatever they're doing, but they don't tell you about it because that's part of the European modesty. Because here in Europe, people are much more modest than they are in the U.S. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and. Um, you know, one of the reasons I like working here so much is because he, the startups and founders and companies and have, they they've achieved so much here, but they don't necessarily tell you. They don't understand what they need to surface in order to let you know that they've achieved this. And they also feel like they're bragging if they tell you. Um, Where does that come from? It's cultural. It's um, like uh, the Dutch. You know, I have this saying I, in, in the Netherlands. They say, "Do maar gewoon, dan doe je al gek genoeg." which is acting normal is crazy enough. So you need to conform. Mm -hmm. And they also say, stake your hoofd niet boven het welt, which means if you stick your head up above the cornfield, you get your head chopped off. And when I've talked to... Um, nice saying. <laughs> <laughs> when, I, when I've talked to um, uh, teams across Europe, majority of people, especially if they're 35 years or older, they all agree, yep, that's how I was raised, that's sort of ingrained in me. And in Sweden, they even say there's a law, and I can't, it's not a, a, a real legal law, but it's, an, it's um, social a, law. a social law that you never say that you're better than anyone in Sweden. It's just like not okay. Well, when you're an entrepreneur, you have to get up in front of people and say, I have this technology that I've developed, I have this idea, I have the right team, I'm gonna, I need this money in order to bring it out to the market and we're the team to do it. That goes against the, the spoken and unspoken agreements in the cultures across Europe. Mm -hmm. In the US, if you don't inflate what you're doing, at least by 25%, you're not gonna get noticed. And inflate it, meaning making it the best, best possible sort of um, possibility of a possible circumstance, not lie about what it is you're mm -hmm. doing. But they're gonna discount you anyway, and the people listening to you, because they expect you to do that. And um, you, have to st you have to come forward in the U.S. and be the best you possibly can be in the largest way possible. And there's so much competition in the States. And in Europe, it's not that there's not competition here. There is. But there's government subsidies. There's all sorts of sort of 
supports that help you mm -hmm. to sort of make it to the market. There's some gaps in it along the way, I know, in different countries, but it's not evenly distributed. But in the U.S., you're on your own. You know, if you've got to get in the right accelerator, you've got to get into the right incubator, you've got to get the help there. Otherwise, there's no government help. There's just, you just, just have to figure it out on your, on your own. So what advice would you give for people, because I resonate with what you're saying, because ingrained in me to kind of have that modesty. Um, what advice would you give people to get out of their own way, even for a split second? Well, the, um, what I tell them is that in the circumstance where you are, um, uh, you're responsible for um, explaining the value of what you're doing, you have to understand that it's not bragging. It's not, you're not being um, uh, exaggerating, you're not bragging. What I've found with all the companies I've worked with, they've actually achieved amazing things, but they're just uncomfortable even naming. They have to name and claim mm -hmm. what they've actually done. It's not a matter of making, it, making things up and lying. It's, but you have to at least surface what you've done. And then you have to frame the problem and the solution, the way and the, how your solution, your technology works, how it works, so that people get it and understand it, and so they can go, wow. And then it continues just to sort of sell itself mm -hmm. once you establish that, because you've got the right numbers, you've got the product market fit, you've got all of that lined up, and then, then it just sort of flows. Okay. If you could give one, one piece of advice, your killer one piece of advice, what would that be? To a startup, you know, you have to you have to talk about your problem in a way that people understand, and you have to um, talk about your solution in a way they understand, and you have to talk about your team. Your team matters a lot, and you know you you can have your. I think it's in the eighty percentiles of the number of. Um, startups who get funded in Silicon Valley, for instance, that they're, they get funded, they get their term sheets with venture capitalists, but their, their product, technology, or service changes by the time it actually gets to the market. So you're, where you start with, your idea could be great, but you're gonna, it's going to change over yeah, time. It's going to pivot. Okay. It's going to pivot, yeah. And um, so the team really matters, because you have to be relentlessly resourceful. So do you have the right team in place? Are you aware of missing team members? And because and, they want to know that you are aware of who has to, he has to be there. So if, you, if you've got the right team, and you've got a, an amazing um, idea that solves a large problem, and you've figured out how to make the money, then you're good. You have to be able to talk about it in two minutes. You have to have two minutes of being able to articulate all of that. Mm -hmm. And when I was in Silicon Valley before I moved to Europe, I talked to the head of TIE, which is the Indus um, uh, enterprise, and it's the largest um, group of uh, technology entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley. It's oldest. It's been around for 40 years or something. And the head of it at the time um, said to me, the, the, the key failure for most startups is that they can't express the value of what they're bringing to the market in, in two minutes. And that's what you do. That's what I do. Yeah. Two minutes, three minutes, four minutes, five minutes. Yeah. So you've coached a, a lot of startups, like just under 3,000, you said. Right. From the people that you coach, what's the divide between male and female? Huh. So, you know, if I, 10% are women, and sometimes um, once in a while we get up to 20%. If um, it's, if it's a university incubator, then there's more women. There's like maybe 30%. 
And, but if it's a private in incubator, mm, maybe there's 10%. Why so, is that? Well, I mean, women entrepreneurs, you know, investors are mostly men. There's some women. It's the whole thing of women coming, being having more support, more visibility. There's a recognition in the U.S. and across Europe that women need to be supported more and identified more and um, uh, in order to reap, get the investment. But they, they um, you know, they get the investment. It used to be 10%, maybe it's 20% of the time versus... Um, like I told you about the 1,200, 500, 50, so 1,200 decks, 500 face-to-face, -face, 50 um, due diligence um, reviews, uh, 10 invested in one startup that gets the return on the ROI. But the 10 that they're invested, only one of the ROIs, only 10% of the one they invest in mm -hmm. are women. So with that in mind... What advice would you give to young, not even young, what advice would you give to female entrepreneurs? Um, you have to be really aware that, you know, that you have, you have to mirror who you're talking to. Okay. You have to really understand um, their mindset. So you have to um, have a sort of clear delivery. You have to not nod your head because a lot of women, what they do when they're listening, we have this sort of supported, supportive sort of instinct so that you're listening and you're going like this. Men, many, many, many men don't do that, and it's a, it's a, it puts you into a uh, sort of a, um, a frame that's lower, sort of more submissive, <laughs> supplicant. You're not a supplicant. In the mirror situation. In the mirror yeah. situation, you have to be able to mirror who you're talking to and deliver your 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 pitch in a way that mirrors their body language, their eye contact. You have to hold the eye contact like that. You have to not wear super high heels. You know, you have to you have, you have to sort of dress in a way that sort of does is neutral, that doesn't attract any attention to how you're dressed, but just the message. You want to make sure that your message gets comes through and that, you're, that you sound and look like someone who can actually execute on the idea, that, they're, that they would feel comfortable with, because they're not women, they're men, the majority of time. People listening or watching um, want to work with you and need your expertise. How can they do so? Um, they can contact me online. I'm, I have a website, bethsuzanne.com, but they can also um, email me at beth at bethsuzanne.com. And if they want to get a discount, they can connect through you, and then they can get a discount working with me. And what are the options of working with you? So you can work with me um, online. I can work with you um, uh, you can come to Spain and uh, to my beachfront office and work with me in Spain. I can come to you. Um, I offer online web uh, s seminars, or webinars that allow you to sort of learn what I'm doing. And um, yeah. All right, brilliant. Let's end on the three power questions. Um, three closing questions. I'm going to ask you, we're not going to dwell on it. Whatever comes to mind, talk from the gut and the heart. Uh, ready? Okay. First one, if you could give your 20-year-old self a single piece of advice, what would it be? Pay attention to what delights you. The aha moments. Nice. <laughs> what do you want your hypothetical great-grandchildren to remember you for? I want them to rem remember me for um, the impact that I've been able to have uh, with helping people to make change happen for good in the world. I want them to remember me f uh, for, uh, with, with 
compassion, the fact that I have compassion for others and also compassion for myself. And um, I want them to remember me for being a loving mother and grandmother and great-grandmother. <laughs> and lastly, finish the sentence, the world needs more. It needs more compassion. That it needs more compassion and self-compassion. If we, if we uh, can f sort of feel compassion for ourselves, then we'll allow to be, have some compassion for others. That's what we need. It's understanding and compassion. Okay. Beth, thank you so much. <laughs> that was amazing. Pleasure. Thank you so much for watching and being part of the P-Squared community. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe for more of the same content. Through the journeys, insights, ideas and stories of our guests, we hope to propel you forward to execute on your goals and help you achieve a bright shift in this world. Till next time.